I'm excited to be here with you this morning. Um, this is part six of a series we've been doing called Love and Hate. The first uh, couple of weeks, we took time to define what love is um, by God's measure, not by ours. Whether we know it or not, we absorb the culture that we live in. We absorb the standards of the day in a very natural way. We also absorb from our, our very personal interactions with parents, um, boyfriends and girlfriends, husbands and wives, friendships. And so we've learned a lot about love in our lives, and a lot of it is skewed. It's broken. Or at the very least, it's an imperfect picture. Even, even the, the love that we've received that's been really good is an imperfect picture. True love we learn from our Father in heaven. True love we learn from Jesus Christ, his son. And the Holy Spirit comes and makes that real and alive in our lives. And so we just talked about what does God define as love? And we looked at the picture of the loving father who loved the prodigal son and the elder brother well. Each of them had their own version of brokenness and lostness, and he loved them lavishly, recklessly, consistently. And that's the way he calls us to love. Then we talked about hate, and we defined hate. And we're not going to understand godly hate unless we see it through the lens of love. God loves us enough that there are some things that he hates because they destroy his kids. They harm his kids. And so God hates sin. God hates hypocrisy because it gives up a false view of what's, of what's real. He wants us to walk in the light. And he hates when darkness is called light and light is called dark because it, it confuses and destroys and rips off people that he longs to heal and set free. And so those are some things that God hates. Um, then we began to talk for a couple weeks about God's correcting love. If we're going to live well in this world that we're in, hating the things we need to hate, loving this world well, pointing them to Jesus, we first have to learn how to receive correction before we have any hope of walking that out with others. And so what does God's correcting love look like? And we talked about the fact that correction is not rejection. We've been, we've been, we've had this mindset built into us that when I'm being corrected, the person is actually shaming me or rejecting me. And maybe we've even experienced real rejection like that. But that's not how God corrects. He actually teaches us that his correction is a sign of his love. It's a sign of our acceptance. Because we are his kids and he loves us, he will lovingly correct us. And so our response then is to confess, to acknowledge when we've blown it, to repent. Not just turning away from something, but turning towards someone. And then finally, receiving forgiveness from him. And then as that plays out, as we're loving others, we walk those things out. When we need to confess to others, we do. When we need to repent, we do. When we need to ask for forgiveness or extend forgiveness, we do. And so we began to talk about God's correcting love. And then last week, we started a little, a little two-part mini thing looking at us as individuals. Starting next week, we're moving into how do we love the people around us well. Um, but first and foremost, I've got to approach this from the standpoint of God. What's going on in my own heart and life? What, what's going on with me? And letting him teach us how to love him and how to love others. And so last week, we looked at the story of the rich young ruler and the kind of love that God calls us to, to love him first and foremost, love him as primary and that he cares about us enough that he'll let us see things that, that get in the way. And he did that with the rich young ruler. He exposed kind of what was in his heart and then gave him an opportunity to love God. So this morning, we're going to finish kind of the second half 
of what Jesus said were the greatest commandments. And so I want to pick up right there in Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. Jesus was approached um, by a teacher of the law. And in verse 36 of Matthew's gospel, chapter 22, this guy comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Verse 39, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. And so what I, what I want to kind of invite us into this week, and, and I tried to do this last week as it relates to our personal relationship with Jesus. I want to invite us into just being open to let God highlight where we are in our personal relationships with one another, people around us. And I think it's a moment for um, right here today being introspective and just saying, God, what do you want to show me today? But even more than that, I hope it is laying a foundation for us of how to walk forward in our relationships with one another. God, teach me how to love others the way you've called me to love others. And God, where I'm off, would you correct me? And so Jesus had an encounter with a guy um, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. And so this is going to be our primary passage this morning. If you want to follow along yourself, you can turn to Luke, chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 25 through 37. Um, we've got the scripture up on the screen for you as well. Um, and as you guys are, are kind of turning there, um, I want to just kind of share uh, something personal about where my own heart is at today. Um, I woke up this morning. It's Father's Day. And something really cool has happened on this particular Father's Day. Every so often, and I'm not sure how it works because of leap years. Does anybody else get thrown off about how often things repeat where like a date falls on a certain day of the week? I get really locked up with that. My mom's birthday is on Thanksgiving like once every seven or eight years. So anyways, um, today is the day that we adopted officially my son Micah, June 18th. I was in Ukraine. We'd gone through a lot of paperwork. We'd gone through months of preparation, um, all kinds of stories there. But that was the day when I was going to show up at the orphanage and take him with me, and he was going to officially be my son from that day forward. And that day fell on today. I just thought, how cool is that? And I get up this morning, and I'm kind of going about my Sunday morning routine, and I begin to hear some movement in the house. Micah is often the first one up in our house. And um, I hear him moving around and I come out to get another cup of coffee and I look and he's out on the back deck. And this is like this new fad of his where he gets up before else and he's sitting on the back deck in a chair and he kind of kind of like an old man almost. <laughs> I think he would be sipping coffee if we would let him have some. But he's sitting there. And he's watching the sunrise. And it just struck me like this, this kid, when we first met him, he's walking around this orphanage and it was like, I mean, it was walled in totally locked in. And that kid, when he was with us and we'd spend time in the orphanage with him, all he wanted to do was get out. Like we would walk around with him and he would inevitably make his way towards the gate. Like he wanted, let's go. Like you're telling me you're my parents. Well, let's get out of here. Come on, let's go. And just watching him be so at home and so settled. And he was sitting in a fenced in backyard and not trying to escape. Any of you that have heard stories about my son, Micah, know it is a miracle that my son could be sitting outside in the backyard and not be trying to escape. Um, we've dealt with all kinds of stuff over the years like that. And so anyways, I just was super grateful today. It's eight years today that he's lived in our home. He just turned 12 a couple of weeks ago. 
And what the Lord was reminding me of this morning um, is one of the most significant moments in my life was being on an airplane about a week to 10 days after I got Micah out of that orphanage and I was on the final step home. We'd gone through a lot of craziness to get him home and I was on the plane from Charlotte to Nashville. Anybody ever done that flight before? Just a short little flight. I'm sitting in this relatively small plane. He's exhausted and he's, he's sitting in the seat next to me. He has his head laid down in my lap and he's falling asleep. And all of a sudden it was like I was overcome with God's love for me and how he views me. And I felt like he was showing me all the stuff you've gone through, all the pain, all the difficulty in bringing this kid home. And he gave me this love for Micah. He gave me this love for this kid that I really hadn't felt up to that point. And I felt like he was just saying to me, that's just a glimpse of how I love you. It's a glimpse of how I love you. Now I'm, I'm grateful personally for that reminder this morning, but my hope and prayer um, as a church and as we're going through this series is that would be the backdrop of how we hear how God is inviting us into loving him and loving each other. That it is his unbelievable love extended towards us that we get to receive. It's a gift. We get to be partakers of it. And then it's a joy to do life with him and as broken and messed up as we are, we get to participate in sharing some of that love with other people. And that's what this is all about. And so there are things we're gonna talk about and we've already talked about that have maybe felt challenging or convicting or difficult. And just know this is something we can't do apart from him, apart from him. The disciples in last week's message were in awe of this rich young ruler who left. And they're like, Jesus, if, he's, if, if he can't be saved, what hope do we have? And Jesus said, with men it's impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible. And so that's what, that's what I wanna invite us into this morning. So, are we ready? Y'all strapped in, you good? Yes, y'all are very quiet, but you feel very attentive, so I think we're good, okay. Feel free to like, you know, shout back at me or something this morning. All right, maybe not heckling, more like encouragement. I, I mean, I did look right at Zach when I said that, so okay. All right, Luke chapter 10, verse 25, enough of my preamble there. And behold, a lawyer, I mean, don't you just know it's going to be a lawyer? Don't you just know it's going to be a lawyer? A lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, of course, saying, I, I added the of course part, that's not in there, okay, <laughs> saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you shall live. Now I just, I briefly wanna pause right here just to comment. Isn't it interesting, this guy got the answer right. That's the starting point this morning. This guy has the right information. He's got the right answer. He's giving the same answer that Jesus gave that we just read a few minutes ago when Jesus was confronted and asked. So this guy has all the right information going into this conversation with Jesus. He gets it. He understands it. He knows how he should live. And then verse 29, but. Sometimes in the Bible, the word but shows up and it's great. It's like we hear really bad news about how we're lost apart from Jesus, but God's incredible love. Well, in this instance, it's kind of the opposite. This guy's nailed it. He's got the right information. He understands in his mind the right way to live 
But, verse 29, he desiring to justify himself. Can you guys say justify himself? said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Then Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, and he poured oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Who is my neighbor is the question. And Jesus answers, really, he gives two answers. He talks with him about who his neighbor is. And then he talks with him about how to love that neighbor. Who his neighbor is and how to love that neighbor. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's, let's pick this up again where the guy starts off. Verse 29, desiring to justify himself, Jesus said, or, and, Jesus, and said to Jesus, sorry, who is my neighbor? So the lawyer's asking a very specific question. God, who's my neighbor? Teacher, who's my neighbor? I, I'm trying to justify myself. I'm trying to understand who I'm supposed to love in this radical way. I'm supposed to love people as I love myself. So who is that? And don't you know, Jesus just loves to do this thing where he doesn't really answer our question. He, he just kind of either asks us a question back to get us thinking more. I mean, you can almost view it this way. Jesus, what he likes to do is he likes to answer the question we should have asked. He likes to answer the question we should have asked. Because the, the story that Jesus tells, he doesn't tell a story about who his neighbor is. He tells him how to be neighborly. Who's the main character in the story that Jesus tells? I mean, there's several in there, right? There's, there's a priest. Is the priest the main character, would you say? No, there's a Levite. Is he the main character? Is the, are the robbers the main character? No. Is the guy who got beat up the main character? Maybe in some ways. But, but who's the story really about? The Samaritan, right? Who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, let me tell you about this Samaritan. Let me tell you about this Samaritan. Now, this would have been shocking to this guy. So I want us to just sit back and consider this for a minute. This lawyer comes up. This would be a guy who would have known the biblical law well, the Mosaic law. He would have known it well. And he comes up to Jesus and he strikes up this conversation. And he's asking something pretty genuinely, although trying to make sure he's okay. And Jesus begins to tell a story. And it's like, okay, there's this guy and he gets beat up. And I mean, you can almost imagine he knows where this is going, right? He's like, okay, my job is to love the the person who's beat up and on the side of the road. I got it. And as Jesus starts to get into the story, he brings in a couple of characters. He brings in a priest. A priest is someone who is the, the teacher of the law, who stood in people's place on their behalf before God. This is a good guy. And this guy shows up in the story 
And this lawyer's thinking, oh, okay, you're probably going to tell me how this priest stopped and helped him, and then I should do that. I should be like the priest. And instead, the priest sees the issue, and what does he do? He's like, I'm taking the long way around on this one. Now, that word see there, it doesn't just mean he glanced and noticed somebody. It means to perceive. That priest was fully aware of the condition of the guy on the side of the road and went on by. We don't know why. We don't know his motives. Jesus doesn't address that. He just goes on by. Okay, the next guy that shows up, a Levite. Well, this is similar to a priest. This is a guy from, from the house of Levi, Levi but he was, he was more than likely kind of um, somebody that would be assisting a priest. He would be doing a lot of the dirty work. He'd, he'd be a servant, really. He'd be somebody that was serving in God's house. Okay, well, maybe the priest, like, didn't want to get his hands dirty or he was on his way to something important, but a Levi, I mean, that guy is a servant. That's like his job is to help people. So surely he'll stop. Same word used. He perceives the condition of the guy and goes right on by. This lawyer's got to be thinking like, man, where is this story going? Now here's where it takes an incredible turn. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Jesus has just made a Samaritan the hero of the story. Now I don't know if you guys know anything about Samaritans. They weren't just kind of like, disliked, they were hated by the Jews. There was enmity between the Jews and the Samaritans. A little bit of backstory. The Samaritans were essentially a hated half-breed, both in terms of race and religion. They had been placed there during the um, Babylonian, Assyrian, all that captivity, when God's people were in captivity for a while and had been removed other people had been brought in and placed in the cities of Samaria in Israel, had been placed there. Other people from other regions. And then over time, they had kind of co-mingled with some Jewish folks who were living in the area. And they did this blend of adopting some elements of the Jewish law and religion in, mixed in with their idol worship. So they had this strange blend of Jewish religion and culture in with their own. And so in this blend... These people are present there. Now, do you guys know the story of Nehemiah and Ezra when the, the, the walls were going to be rebuilt and the temple was going to be rebuilt and there was opposition? That opposition was from the Samaritans. Those were the people that had been living there. Okay, so there, there is a long history of conflict. In fact, we know from other stories from Jesus' life that um, there were all kinds of scandals and issues with Samaritans. I mean, Jesus is out talking to a Samaritan woman by the well. That was scandalous. In the middle of the day, a Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman. In fact, as a, as a word to insult Jesus during a big debate in John chapter 8, when the priests are coming at Jesus and bashing him, they call him a Samaritan as an insult. So do y'all get the picture there? Samaritans were hated. And Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero. What is Jesus up to? What is he after? And I, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, I don't know. Again, I, I can't judge what's going on in the heart and mind of this lawyer. But I know what the passage tells us. He wanted to justify himself. And I know that he hears the whole story. And Jesus gives him three identified characters. A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. He names them. He gives them a title. He gives them definition. And I think it's interesting when he gets down to the end of the story 
Look what happens, verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Now just stop right there for a minute. If I asked you guys after you heard the whole story, who do you think was the good neighbor, who would you say? Samaritan. And you'd say it just like that, right? The Samaritan. That's really easy to say. Notice how, what he says. He said, the one who showed him mercy. Is it easier to say a Samaritan or to say a whole sentence to avoid saying the word Samaritan? I find that interesting. He couldn't even say the Samaritan was the good guy. So what's the point? The first step in learning to love others like ourselves is to realize something about ourselves. The kinds of people who live their lives feeling the need to justify themselves all the time are the kinds of people who end up judging others. They go hand in hand. When I live under the weight of trying to justify myself, of trying to, to prove myself, of trying to be understood, of feeling misunderstood, of feeling accused, I will in turn, whether I'm even realizing it or not, I'll do that with other people. I will find myself living in judgment. It's, it's often the people not who appear prideful outwardly, but the people who appear of low self-esteem that are sit in judgment of others. Jesus is letting this guy see something. You're trying to justify yourself, and in doing that, you're looking down on other people. You're missing this thing that's going on in your heart. But the beauty of Jesus is that we stand justified. We stand forgiven. We stand loved and accepted. The first step for me learning to love others well is to recognize how well I've been loved. When I understand my position as accepted, then I can walk in love and humility towards others. Jesus won't allow us to serve from a place of anxious superiority, but a place of assured humility. Before he'll even talk to this guy about how to love somebody, he talks to him about the place he's loving him from. Do I have a sense of assurance and acceptance? Am I walking in humility and understanding who I am in God's eyes? Then I have an opportunity to love others well. But if I'm living from a place of anxiousness and self-justification and unsure of where I stand with God or others, then I'm, I'm going to have that sense of anxiety. And to justify myself, I will naturally lower other people. So I feel more assured about where I stand. Paul writes about this, about how we love others well in, in uh, his letter to the Philippian church. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, this is how he tells us to love. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, the first thing that should change in our hearts and minds is not trying to figure out who to love, but to figure out how to be neighborly. If I'm more worried about who my neighbor is than how I can be neighborly, I'm missing the boat. I'm missing the boat. God is going to bring people along. I think it's interesting when Jesus is telling the story, he starts it off by saying, by chance, the priest passed a guy on the road. Does Jesus really believe in chance? 
No, I just think he's making the point, as you go along your way, there are going to be plenty of opportunities to find people to love. There is need all around us. In fact, he's, what he's really saying is, we don't have to go finding somebody to love. We will actually find ourselves stepping over people to love if we're not careful. But if my heart is in a place where I don't have a sense of superiority or anxiety or self-justification, then I'm free to see others the way God sees them. I'm free to consider others more highly than myself and I can love them well. So who is my neighbor? That's kind of the wrong question. The question is, how do I be a good neighbor? And so then the second thing that Jesus does in this story is he gives him a picture of how to love somebody well. And so let's just unpack this a little bit this morning. In verses 33 through 35, as he introduces the Samaritan into the story, he says, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, the man who was beat up and left half dead. And when he saw him, he had compassion. All three times, Jesus uses the same word for saw the guy. They perceive, they recognize his condition. And the Samaritan saw him and had compassion. That is so much like Jesus. All throughout the gospel accounts, we see Jesus encountering people and the scripture will say of him, he had compassion on them. I can think of one moment in particular, the story where Jesus fed the 5,000. I don't know if y'all remember this story, but him and his disciples are coming off a rough season. John the Baptist has just been killed and they're worn out and they're exhausted. And the scripture says they went to a deserted place. They were trying to get away for a while. And all these people followed Jesus and found him out in this quiet place where he wanted to rest and chill out, get refreshed. They track him down. And it says when he saw the multitudes, he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion. And from that moment forward, he taught, he healed. And then we get to the story where he feeds all 5,000 folks that were there. He was moved with compassion. It starts there recognizing, seeing people's condition and having compassion. The story goes on. He binds his wounds. He sees the injuries, he sees the wounds, he binds them up. Now what I think is interesting about this, there's nothing said in the scripture that would tell us this Samaritan was qualified to do a good job of helping someone that was half dead. I have no reason to think he had the correct supplies with him. I have no reason to think that he had some skills as a doctor, but he did what he could. Hey, I'm, I'm going to do what I can to dress the wounds and then I'm going to get this guy to help. And so that's the second thing that we see he does. He gets off his own beast of burden, his own animal, his own donkey or whatever, and lifts this guy up and puts him there and goes with him to get help. See, I think for some of us, our issue might be the first thing. God, I don't know if I've got eyes of compassion for people. I don't know if I'm slowing down enough to really see where people are. But for others, we might actually have a desire to help people and we feel unqualified. We feel like, well, I don't know how to help them. I don't know that I have the answers. Great. You're just the person Jesus wants to use. Think about the folks he rallied to himself when he walked this earth. I'm going to find fishermen. I'm going to find tax collectors. I'm going to find these guys on the edges of society. They're perfect. They're flawed. They're messed up. Great. That's who I want to use. I want to use people who actually recognize they don't have enough. Great. They can receive from me what they need and then they can trust me to help them along the way. 
And I love this picture. He took the guy somewhere where he could get help. He went and found an inn where the guy could be cared for. For many of us, that's the part we can play. We, we encounter wounded people all the time. Don't let your fear or your sense of not having the right answers for them hold you back from loving people. I don't have the answers for people. I can tell you as a pastor, you know, I'm a year into being a senior pastor for the first time. I'm 15 years in of doing ministry of some form or fashion with youth kids and otherwise. Here's what I know. I don't have what it takes. The longer I do it, the less qualified I feel. I'm serious. I'm not just trying to sound humble. I'm serious. I encounter more situations that I realize, God, I don't know what to do right here. But the thing about us is this. Not that we have the answers. We know the one who does. Jesus has the answers. And I bet God also has placed some people in our life that are maybe a little further along than us. And I can say to this friend or this person or this stranger in need and say, hey, come here, I want to help bind up your wounds, but like, I'm not the best person for that. But man, I know this person you got to know over here. And I bring him over and introduce him to this person that can help. I talk to Jesus about them. We bear one another's and so fulfill the law of Christ. So he had compassion. He bound his wounds. He carried him to help. I love even the picture of oil and wine. I'm not going to do a whole sermon this morning on all that oil represents in the scripture and all that wine represents in the scripture. Um, but just know those elements have a sense of healing in them. They have a sense of, of acceptance and identity in them. And they have a sense of joy in them. I, I can breathe healing. I can breathe acceptance and love. I can share the joy that comes from God in a person's life who's struggling, who's hurting, who's in need. And finally, he provided a place at a cost to himself. I mean, if we think about it, this really cost this guy on a lot of levels. You know, he, he used some of his stuff. He got off of his ride and had the walk. He finds the inn. Well, this guy was robbed. He has no money, so he pays for the help. He does all of this stuff to provide. Listen, it cost this guy time. I don't know where the Samaritan was going, but my guess was he wasn't planning on spending the night and helping a guy who was beat up and left for dead. I mean, I was convicted again, as I always am when I read this story, of the times I've driven past people on the side of the road. And I fall for all these same things. I fall for not having compassion. I definitely fall for feeling unequipped because all I got to offer is a cell phone. I mean, I'm, there's no way I'm helping fix that car. I'm, I would make it worse, right? But like I moved past. But this guy gave up an entire day, an entire night to help this guy. I thought it was interesting that it cost him time. There's, um, anybody know uh, about a guy named Malcolm Gladwell? Anybody ever heard of Malcolm Gladwell? In his book, The Tipping Point, he tells this story um, of a study that was done at Princeton University. And so these couple of guys at Princeton University, they took some seminary students and they prepared them to give a short talk on the story of the Good Samaritan. And so they said, hey, we want you to give, give a story. Um, you're going to go over to this certain place on campus and kind of give this speech, and, um, and there you go. And so what they did is they set up a scenario where their path from the office where they were going to meet to the place where they were giving the speech, they were going to go past somebody in need. They found a guy to play like he was hurt and sick and kind of laying there in an alley that they had to walk past. And so they did this study, and they built in some different factors. Um, one of the factors they built in is they told half the people, 
you're running a little late, you need to race over there. And they told the other half, hey, you know what, you got plenty of time, you've got a few extra minutes, but if you want to head over, you can just kind of feel settled and ready. And it made like an 80% difference in whether they stopped to help if they were in a hurry or not. The people that were in a hurry went right on by, like 13% of them or something stopped. But over 70% stopped that didn't feel rushed. As Americans, that should get our attention. I live my life way too rushed, way too bustling, way too in a hurry. And if, if we even attach this back to where we started, if I live anxiously and needing to justify myself, then I'm gonna feel a lot of guilt if I'm late for somebody else's thing and I'll miss a person in need because I'm worried about how bad I might look if I show up late. But if, if we lived our lives with a sense of pace, of margin, healthy margin, if there was time in our lives for other people and we could live an unhurried life, we would begin to see and recognize need around us more and more. And instead of being people who believe in the story of the Good Samaritan, we could be people who live the story of the Good Samaritan. They said there were literally people on their way to tell the story of the Good Samaritan that stepped over the guy that was in the alley. And I'd like to believe that wouldn't be me. But if I'm honest, I've probably done that or some version of it. The point is this, to love my neighbors well, it's going to cost me something. It might cost me time. It might cost me finances. It, it may cost me um, practical things that I have. But it's worth it. It's worth it. This guy is given an unusual amount of help from this good Samaritan. An unusual amount of help. This guy went above and beyond. And this is the kind of life Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 7. Um, there's a relatively well-known passage of Scripture where Jesus talks about the wide gate and the narrow gate. You guys familiar with that? Narrow is the gate to life. Well, there's a verse that gives that, those two gates context. It's the verse right before that. Check it out. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I, I believe that the road for both of those gates is the same road. I believe that. I believe we're all walking on the same road. I just think the difference is with the wide gate, you can miss people and go right around them. But with the narrow gate, I'm paying attention to the people that Jesus puts in my path, in my life, that he would call me to love. See, I don't think that we need to leave this morning and sit down and start getting real strategic. Okay, I'm gonna go spend some time there. Or you know what, I'm gonna build some extra time on my schedule here and start trying to figure out how I'm gonna find the people I need to love. I think the goal is to leave this morning saying, God, I wanna be in such a place that the people who are already in my path that I will see them, that I will notice them, and I can make a difference. You don't have to go looking for those in need, but as you go, be looking. That's, that's actually kind of the wording of the Great Commission. When Jesus says, go into all the world, what, that actually really should be translated as you go into all the world. As you are living the life you're living, 
have a sense of awareness of the people around you and love them well. Now, does that just sound impossible to you guys? Am I the only one? It sounds really hard to me. Like if I'm honest, last Sunday's message about the rich young ruler, this Sunday's message about the good Samaritan, I can read this and I I mean, I just see myself all over the pages and I'm like, yeah, I'm going away sad like the rich young ruler. I can't do this. I'm, I'm the lawyer constantly trying to justify myself and I feel beat up and defeated when I hear the story of the good Samaritan. I just see how I fall short. Good. Because we aren't supposed to do this on our own. We're actually supposed to see this and go, I can't do that. And then go, Jesus, help. Here's the reality. Jesus is the perfect version of the rich young ruler. Jesus is the perfect version of that. Jesus left behind all of his riches, all of his authority, all of his power, and all of his position to come be in my place. He did what the rich young ruler couldn't do and what I can't do on my own. The reality is, Jesus is the good Samaritan. He got shut out at the inn so he could bring us into the inn. He did this. He's the outsider, he's the outcast. He came in our place to be what we could never be. And now by the grace of God, I've got this rich young ruler who lavishes the love of God on me. I've got this good Samaritan who teaches, who first of all loves me. I'm the beat up destitute person. I'm the unnamed person in the story. I've been robbed. I've been left for dead. I've been abandoned and rejected by men. I've had good people walk right on by me, not carrying a wit. I've been that. And Jesus has radically come into my life and loved me well. And now that same Jesus invites me into a life with him. And so that's the invitation we've been talking about. I get to, with God, live this way. I get to receive and experience his lavish love into my life. And then I learn more and more how to love him back with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then I let him teach me and guide me and help me learn to love my neighbor as myself. This is the life that Jesus is inviting us into. And so as we prepare to kind of go forward as a church into this series, we're going to begin talking a lot about what's wrong in the world around us. What are some broken things in the church? What are some broken things in our society, our community at large? And if we're going to love that world well, here's what's going to have to happen first. I first have to live with some honesty, with some humility, and with some help. I need to do that first, and I need to do that always. A lot of things I've learned in my life as a believer, it's like, do this first, then do this, and it's almost like an an order that we go down. But walking in honesty and humility and asking God for help, that's how we need to live every day. The only hope that we have of loving the people around us well and of reaching our communities for Jesus is if we are walking in honesty, humility, and asking God for help regularly. I'm just confessing to you guys, I fall short of this stuff we've talked about the last two weeks all the time. Am I willing to be honest about that with God and in my own heart and with people around me? Am I gonna try to justify myself or am I willing to have some humility and say, that's me, that's me.
God, I want to love you with all my heart. I want to love people well. Help. And he says, you got it. I'll help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. God, we thank you that you lavish it richly upon us. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and what you've done in our lives. And God, our desire, my desire, my hope this morning, Lord, is that I learn more and more how to love you with everything I've got. And God, that I learn how to love the people around me well. God, from the people closest to me, like my wife and kids, God, to strangers that I encounter on the street and everyone in between. God, help me to move from justifying myself and trying to feel like I've done enough or writing certain people off as people I don't need to help. God, help me to move from that to just being the kind of person who is neighborly. God, I want to be the kind of guy who has compassion, who's willing to give time and resources. God, I want to live out of being loved well and share that with other people. Lord, would you help us to do that? God, I pray that you'd give us um, just a sense of being honest with ourselves and with you, maybe with some other people where we need to make some things right. God, would you give us a sense of humility that we'd be willing to be vulnerable so we could be healed? And God, would you help us to move past our stubborn pride so that we could ask you for help and that we would find everything we need in you? Jesus, we love you and we need you. We thank you. It's in your name we pray this morning. Amen. Amen.